morning. Happy New Year, all you beautiful people. I've told you before, I, I don't really like you looking at me. I get very nervous about that, but I love looking at you. So it makes it, <coughs> it makes it worthwhile just to look into your faces. You guys look good at the end of 2017. I think you're going to have a good 2018. It's going to be a good year. Hey, I have a question for you. <coughs> have you ever been someplace where everybody seemed to understand it was appropriate to speak quietly except for one person that apparently didn't get the memo and was speaking way too loud. My wife and I celebrated an anniversary years ago and we went to this wonderful little romantic restaurant up in the mountains. Fireplace, candles on the tables, really all, the, all the diners were speaking quietly and the servers were spoke very quietly, except for one guest sitting a few tables over with a lady friend and he was speaking at a volume like he was in a noisy football stadium. And he was spouting his philosophy of love and relationships. My wife and I didn't want to hear anything he had to say, but we heard every word because he just kept talking and it made it hard to concentrate on anything else. I bring that up because all of us have a voice like that that we've all heard, and it never stops talking. And if we listen to it, it makes it hard to pay attention to anything else. And I'm talking about the voice of discouragement. Voice of discouragement. If you ever struggle with discouragement in your life, you ever battle with discouragement in your life, you picked a great day to come to church at the end of 2017 because Nehemiah chapter 4 is probably the greatest chapter in the Bible that deals with how to silence, how to silence the voice of discouragement. I don't know if you make New Year's resolutions, but I'm praying that when we leave here today, we won't make a resolution. I pray every one of us will make a New Year's declaration that from now on, when the voice of discouragement speaks, we're just going to stop listening. We're not going to listen. Can't wait to get into Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's pray first, please. Father, we, we come to you at the end of 2017. Grateful. You got us through the year, Lord. And for, for so many wonderful things happened in 2017. And there were probably, for all of us, some things that were some pretty big hurdles. Yet, you're faithful. You're always faithful. And Lord, life is such a gift. Every moment you give us is a gift. And of course, the biggest gift of all is yourself. And you gave us yourself through your son, Jesus. And through him, we can be here and love each other and love you and open your word and have your word speak to us. And that's what we pray for today, Father. Not, not my voice. I pray we would hear your Holy Spirit teach us so clearly. We ask this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 4. <clears throat> Let's turn there. We took a week off from our study of Nehemiah because we had Christmas last week. And Pastor Mark <coughs> took us through the Bible, you remember? Showed us verse after verse, Old Testament and New Testament, of why Jesus needed to come to earth on that day we call Christmas. So let me give us, since we took a week off, let me give us a quick recap of where we are in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah was in Persia, serving King Artaxerxes in the inner court. And word came to him about the condition of the exiles that had returned to Jerusalem, that they were living in great distress and disgrace because the city, the walls and the gates were ruined. 
Nehemiah was brokenhearted and he fasted and he prayed for days. In chapter 2, King Artaxerxes then gave Nehemiah permission to return to uh, Jerusalem with people and provisions to rebuild the wall and the gates. In chapter 2, when Nehemiah arrived, the Samaritan neighbors were not happy to see him. We're going to hear a lot more from the Samaritan neighbors in this chapter. In chapter 3, the one that Pastor Mark covered two weeks ago, Nehemiah's people began making repairs, starting with the gates. And Pastor Mark showed us that in chapter 3, we learned that three things. Sin, sin always brings destruction. Sin brings destruction every time. Saints, God's people, bring restoration. And Satan brings obstruction. We're going to really see that in our chapter today. The once glorious city of Jerusalem sat in ruin and disgrace and humiliation because of sin. And now a group of exiles had come and they are going to risk everything to rebuild what sin had destroyed. In chapter 4, Satan the obstructor is going to try all sorts of ways to discourage Nehemiah. Let's look at our outline for the chapter Instead of reading the whole chapter to you today, I'm going to just go through it a little section at a time so the story unfolds. But here's how the, the chapter is outlined. We, have, we start with scoffing and praying, and then the rest of the chapter is this glorious picture of working and watching. Many, many years ago, when my wife and I bought our first house, we put up a wall at our backyard with the full blessing and cooperation of our neighbor. Well, Nehemiah's neighbors were not so nice and cooperative with the wall he wanted to build. Let's read together chapter, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burnt ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Thanks for that, Tobiah. We met the welcoming committee of Sanballat and Tobiah in chapter 2. Turn to chapter 2. We'll just refresh our memory about these, this sunshiny couple. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, heard that Nehemiah had come with the king's blessing, it was very displeasing to them that someone should come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So that's how we meet these two. Then look down at verse 19 of chapter 2. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, heard that the wall renovation had begun, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? You know what? Sanballat and Tobiah are just no fun to be around. So we're going to call them the Bummer Brothers. The Bummer Brothers used taunting and criticism to try to discourage Nehemiah. It is so easy, it is so easy to get discouraged, isn't it? Isn't it easy to get discouraged? You know, sometimes people can say something to us that just crushes us. Other times we can get discouraged all by ourselves because we're our own harshest critic. 
Other times we can get so discouraged just being in a situation that is scary or frustrating or fearful. Discouragement drains our confidence. Discouragement makes it hard for us to concentrate on anything other than our problems. From chapter 2 to chapter 6, the Brummer, Brummer brothers are going to try seven times to discourage Nehemiah with criticism, ridicule, and threats. That's how discouragement attacks us too. It keeps coming at us from all over the place, trying to see how it can wear us down. So here's something I think we might know, but we really need to understand, because this passage makes it very clear. We need to understand that the voice of discouragement, it never stops talking. The voice of discouragement never, ever stops talking. But God has given us Nehemiah as our role model so we can learn how to stop listening. Stop listening to that voice. Let's read uh, chapter 4, verse 1 again. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry. The wording furious and very angry means that Sanballat's head was about to explode. He was that upset. As long as the walls around Jerusalem stayed down and destroyed, the enemy could attack Jerusalem anytime they wanted. But now, here comes Nehemiah with a work crew to rebuild the wall. So Sanballat got boiling mad, mad at Nehemiah, and probably also really mad at himself that he didn't take earlier advantage to attack when he, he could. <clears throat> Look at verse 2. He, Sanballat, spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Calling the Jews feeble means they are weak and unimpressive. Well, that's not very nice. But you know what? It was sort of true. It was sort of true. These Jews were not professional wall builders. Do you remember who they were? In, <clears throat> Pastor Mark showed us in chapter 3 that Nehemiah's crew included goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants, officials or politicians. We know how helpful, helpful they are. Priests, <clears throat> temple servants, daughters, and others. Not exactly the Army Corps of Engineers. These folks were way in over their head. Do you ever feel like you're in over your head? Do you ever feel like you're in over your head in ministry? Or at work? Or just in life? When we feel like that, when you and I feel like we're in over our heads, aren't we extra vulnerable to criticism and discouragement? When our confidence is already low, it doesn't take very much to kill what we've got left, does it? Nehemiah's people were exiles returning to a land most of them, maybe all of them, had never seen before. And they were coming to do work that most of them, probably all of them, had never done before. But, but, what happens, what happens when the feeble, what happens when the feeble trust in the Almighty? What happens when the feeble trust in the Almighty? When we, the feeble, trust in God the Almighty? We become undefeatable. We become undefeatable. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10 will be on the screen. You know this passage, but it, it mirrors exactly what Nehemiah is going through when Paul wrote, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, plural, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, when I am feeble, then I am strong. Our God is so good. Have you ever been some, around somebody like Tobiah or Zambalot, someone with a critical and hurtful tongue? They cause a lot of pain and distraction, don't they? God forbid you or I should ever, ever be a bummer brother or a bummer sister in someone else's life. Matthew 7, 1 to 5 will be on the screen. This is what Jesus said to us. He said, do not judge so you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, before you or I can even have a critical thought about someone else, their flaws that we think we see in them, Jesus tells you and me, we've got to address the big flaws in our own lives first. <clears throat> Galatians 6.1, another wonderful passage where Paul writes, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, meaning you who have dealt with or are dealing with that log in your own eye, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If we are put in a place where we do need to correct someone else, we must do so with the knowledge that we are just as capable of committing that sin that the other person is committing. As followers of Jesus, you and I, we're called to be men and women of kindness, not criticism. Gentleness, not judgmentalness. You and I are called to be light, not a dark cloud in somebody's life. You want to see something interesting? Of course you do. That's why you came to church. Look, let's look again. Let's read again the bitter biting barbs of the Bummer Brothers, okay? Chapter 4, verse 2. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it, the wall, for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Okay, Sanballat starts off by just mocking the Jews. But then he says, can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Now he means, do these Jews think they can offer some kind of ritual sacrifice to their God and their God's going to miraculously build the wall? So now Sanballat is mocking God. Look at verse 3. We, now we meet Tobiah, the, the wannabe stand-up comic. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, <coughs> he had probably been working on this joke all day long, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. I have two problems with Tobiah. First, his joke isn't that funny. Secondly, he made a huge mistake with his punchline. Did you see that? Look again what he said. Verse 3. If a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Do you see his mistake? Tobiah refers to the wall as their wall, as if the wall belonged to the Jews. Whose wall was it? Yeah, God's wall, God's project. Tobiah was making fun of God's building project. So here's a question for you and me I've been giving a lot of thought to. Do you, do I ever criticize one of God's building projects? You know, Ephesians 2.10 says that each believer, every believer, is God's handiwork. So, if we criticize 
another believer, we are criticizing one of God's cherished, beloved work projects. Something for us to think about, isn't it? Now, King Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah his full permission to rebuild, so Sanballat and Tobiah had no authority at all to stop the work. All they could try to do is discourage Nehemiah so he'd quit. That's what discouragement does. It makes us want to quit. You know, we too, <clears throat> just like Nehemiah, have the official blessing of our king, Jesus. So our enemy, the devil, has no authority at all to stop us from serving the Lord and doing the Lord's work. But the devil sure can try and will try every way he can to discourage us, get us to quit if he can do it. Here's something to think about. It'll be on the screen. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but this is really interesting. Discouragement is actually the opposite of faith. Discouragement is the, actually the opposite of faith. Discouragement causes us to believe the worst. Isn't that true? When you're discouraged, everything's just dark and bad. Discouragement causes us to believe the worst, but faith causes us to believe God. So while the Bummer brothers were mocking Nehemiah, what was Nehemiah doing? Let's read. He was praying. This is great. Look at verse 4 and 5. Here's what Nehemiah prayed. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you because they have demoralized the builders. Prayer. Prayer is the antidote for the poison of criticism and discouragement. Prayer is the antidote for discouragement. Nehemiah let the Lord deal with his enemies so he could just stay focused on the work God gave him to do. Nehemiah's prayer might remind, us, might remind you of something David wrote about 500 years earlier. It'll be up on the screen. This is Psalm 38, verses 12 to 15. If you don't know this passage, it's a good one to mark and return to in the days that come. We all need this passage. Look what David wrote. He said, Those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long, just like Nehemiah was facing. But like a deaf man... I, but I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I am like a mute man that does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no arguments. For I hope in you, O Lord, you will answer, O Lord my God. Wow. Like Nehemiah and like David, you and I must turn a deaf ear and a mute mouth to those that try to discourage us. We just need to do that. We need to trust the Lord to answer for us. The Bible does not say this is easy to do. The Bible says it's necessary to do. While Nehemiah stood strong in the Lord, you see in verse 5, the people were becoming demoralized. Demoralized means they were feeling dejected and depressed. Do you ever feel dejected and depressed? Nehemiah asked God to deal harshly with the enemy because of this. We need to understand that Nehemiah's prayer in this passage is actually prophetic. It speaks to the judgment that comes to all people, all nations that oppose the Lord. So we can't, we can't use Nehemiah's prayer here as the model for how we should pray for our enemies. Jesus gave us the model. It'll be on the screen for you. Matthew 43, Matthew 5, verses 43 to 44. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As Jesus hung on the cross, surrounded by his enemies, remember, he prayed, Father, forgive them. 
Okay, how did God answer Nehemiah's prayer? Let's look at verse 6. Here's the answer to Nehemiah's prayer to deal with the enemy. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for or because the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah asked God to take care of his enemies. And what does the all-wise God do? He answers that prayer by taking care of Nehemiah and his people. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever prayed for the Lord to work with some, for somebody or work with somebody in your life that is causing you a, con a conflict? And the Lord, instead of working in that person's life, works in your life instead? Happens to me all the time. The builders were demoralized, but after Nehemiah's prayer, God gave the builders a mind to work. It's amazing what God's people can do when we're all focused on doing the work God has given us to do. Very quickly, the wall reached half its height. Well, is that a big accomplishment? How tall was the wall to get it to half its height? How big was that wall? Let's look. I hear some slides to help us understand what they did. The finished wall, this is Nehemiah's wall as it looks today. The finished wall was about 40 feet tall. So building it to half its height means they got up to about 20 feet high. That's tall. Well, how wide was the wall? Next picture. The wall measured... 8 to 15 feet wide with some sections over 20 feet wide. So it was tall, it was wide, but how long was the wall? One more. The history, historian Josephus records that the wall around Jerusalem was about four and a half miles long. So the half-finished wall would have been about 20 feet tall, eight or more feet wide, and four and a half miles long. Wow. Look what the people did when they had a mind to work. This was an exciting but also very stressful time for Nehemiah and the people. They had done so much work, but there was still so much more work to do. Sometimes getting a project halfway done isn't nearly as hard as getting it all the way finished. Experience that in your own life, the things you start? Okay, while the people were working on the wall, what were the Bummer brothers up to? Let's read verses 7 and 8. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah... The Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. Well, the Bummer brothers were getting very angry again. Apparently, Nehemiah's enemies had an even disposition. They were mad all the time. They were upset this time because their taunting only made the Jews work harder and better. <clears throat> the more the wall grew, the angrier the enemy grew. Just like with us. The more you and I grow in the Lord, the more angry our enemy, Satan, becomes. You know, ironically, the Jews were rebuilding the wall to protect themselves. But it was the very act of rebuilding the wall that brought the threat of attack. We see that God's people were, were united, but unfortunately, so were God's enemies. Look at verse 8 again. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. The neighbors put aside their own petty differences so they could unite against the common enemy, God and his people. They wanted to cause a disturbance. This means they wanted to create confusion. Satan loves to create confusion in the family of God primary weapon of his, create confusion. He does this by getting us to divert our attention to anything other than God. Christians get confused, and so do churches. When we shift our attention away from the Lord onto 
something else, anything else other than the Lord. Here's a question I want you to think about for yourself. When you get bad news, I imagine everybody in this room has received some bad news. When you get bad news, do you have a physical reaction to bad news? Do you feel it somewhere in your body? Do you like do you, is your stomach? you feel it in your stomach? Do you feel it in your head maybe or your neck? What do your emotions do when you get bad news? Do you suddenly feel very tiny? Do you cry? What kind of thoughts run through your head when you get bad news? Do your thoughts immediately go to worst case scenarios? Nehemiah was human just like you and me. He probably felt his stomach drop when he heard that the enemies were uniting to attack. He may have felt a wave of panic wash over him. Maybe his head filled with a lot of dark and bad images and outcomes. Whatever Nehemiah was thinking and feeling, Nehemiah did something ridiculously powerful that you and I can do too. Look at verse 9. Look what Nehemiah did. He got bad news, and in verse 9, but we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. But we prayed to our God. Wow. Nehemiah immediately brought God into the situation. Immediately. That's a brilliant power move. That's a brilliant power move. Bring God into your situation. Prayer is the best response to bad news. Prayer is the best response to bad news. Nehemiah faced a terrible situation with faith in a tremendous God. You know what Nehemiah believed? Nehemiah believed that God was in complete control of all the things he could worry about. Nehemiah believed God was in complete control of all the things he could worry about. Do we have a God like that? Do we believe that too when we get bad news, when we're in a discouraging situation, that God is actually completely and fully in charge of all those things we could worry about? So Nehemiah prayed, and then he posted guards. Dear ones, dear ones, this is exactly what you and I have to do when we get bad news. We need to pray and we need to post guards over our thoughts and emotions. If we don't guard our thoughts and emotions when we're getting bad news, we are going to get discouraged and defeated every time. Well, how do we post guards over thoughts and our emotions? Here are four ways. There are four guards that we can post, and we need all four of these. We can pray, read, reach, and remember. I'll explain what this means. First, prayer. Prayer is a powerful guard. Each time we start to worry, we need to turn that worry and the next worry and the next one and the next one and the next one after that into prayers every time. Discouragement, discouragement becomes encouragement when we pray. We need to read. God's word, God's word is a gigantic guard. When we just start to feel afraid, when you start to feel that panic come over you, that fear start to come, whether it's in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day, we need to go to and read and reread scriptures that focus our attention on the truth of how powerful, faithful, and loving, and capable our God is. If you don't have some emergency verses already marked in your Bible like some of us do, then just go online and Google Bible verses about being afraid. And you'll find a lot of good ones right there. And write them down. Keep them where you can get your hands on them. Third thing we can do is our, we, can, we can reach. We can reach out to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our brothers and sisters are steadfast guards. We need to reach out to each other for, for prayer, for comfort and encouragement. 
when we're going through tough times. Makes all the difference in the world. And the fourth guard we can set is our memories. We need to remember. Our memories are mighty guards, just like Nehemiah. We need to remember God's past faithfulness. We must remember God's past faithfulness every time we face uncertainty in the present and in the future. Do you ever face uncertainty in the present, present and future and you forget all about the faithfulness God has been in the past? We can't do that. We must remember. Okay, it would be nice. It would be so nice if every time we prayed, our situation immediately improved. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. It, it got worse for Nehemiah. Not only was an attack coming, a united attack was coming, but now he finds out that his workers are feeling overwhelmed and exhausted. Look at verse 10. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the builders, burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. We need to understand, this wasn't just a construction project. There was over 140 years of rubbish they had to clean up too before they could get the wall finished. You know, sometimes in our lives, before you and I can finish the work the Lord has given us to do, he makes us aware of some old trash, some old rubbish we need to clean up in our lives as well. The worn out, exhausted workers believed that an attack would come before they could get the wall done. And you know what? This is exactly, exactly what the enemy was planning. Look at verse 11. Our enemy said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. The enemy was looking for an opportunity to attack. And the stressed and exhausted condition of the people gave the enemy a, the golden opportunity they were looking for. Our enemy, Satan, loves to hit us when we're down. We need to be so careful when we get sick or when we're just exhausted from work or life. We need to be careful because illness and fatigue make us prime targets for spiritual attack. Through this whole thing, <laughs> I don't know if you're enjoying it. I, I think this is amazing. Nehemiah's enemies thought they were being so stealth, but God made sure Nehemiah was aware of their plans every step of the way. Just like he does for you and me when we read his word, God makes sure we understand what the devil is planning for us every step of the way. Look at verse 12. Here's how Nehemiah found out. He said, The Jews who lived near them, who lived near the Samaritan enemies, came and told us ten times, they will come against us from every place where you may turn. So there were some Jews that lived outside of Jerusalem. And they overheard the enemy's secret plans to attack the wording here suggests they came to Nehemiah in a nervous frenzy, either all at once or day after day. But their message was the same. The enemy's coming from everywhere. There's no escape. The enemy's coming from everywhere. There's no escape. Well, Nehemiah, again, was a man of prayer, not panic. And the Lord had given Nehemiah years in King Artaxerxes' inner circle where he undoubtedly learned some military tactics because Nehemiah knew how to ramp up his security measures. Look at verse 13. Then I stationed the men in the lowest, lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places. And I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. Nehemiah knew exactly where to, de to, to deploy his men. And he wisely organized them according to family ties where they'd be extra motivated to help each other. But the people became scared. Who wouldn't be scared? Look at verse 14. Look what Nehemiah did. When I saw their fear... I rose and I spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. 
Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Nehemiah went to the leaders and he went to every person. <clears throat> and he said the same thing to everyone. And this is what he said to them and to us. Please, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what the enemy might do. Don't be afraid of what you think might happen. Don't do that. Instead, remember how great and awesome our God is. Trust in him and fight for those you love. <clears throat> Nehemiah understood something that I hope we all understand. The Lord is greater. The Lord is greater than anything and everything we're afraid of. I'm not saying there isn't a lot of things to be afraid of. I'm saying the Lord is greater than anything and everything we're afraid of. <clears throat> okay, so what happened when the enemy finally attacked? What happened when that united enemy attacked? Well, they never did. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> when our enemies heard that it, their secret plan of attack, was known to us, and God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall each one to his work. Once the plan was exposed, the enemy didn't go through with it. Does this sound like a familiar pattern in your life? How often do you and I worry about things that never end up happening? Pretty long list, isn't it? All this time, the Jews thought the wall would protect them, but as always, it was their Lord that was protecting them and protecting us. I love this, what he wrote. Nehemiah's people returned to the wall, each one to his work. I love that, each one to his work. You know what that means? It means that God gives each one of us a job to do. God has given you a job to do. It's different than the job he's given the person next to you to do, and it's different than the job he's given me to do. Each one of us has a job to do, and the question is, are you and I doing the work that God has called us to do? Have you heard the story of the sword and the stone? You heard that story? Well, we come now to the sto a different story. It's the story of the sword and the trowel. It's not as catchy of a title, but it's a better story. Let's read it together, verses 16 to 18. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. Nehemiah kept that wall project moving safely ahead. He assigned people work details and weapons security. Kept everything moving right along. And he put the captains behind the whole house of Judah. You know what this means? This is great. He put his leaders in the trenches, so to speak. He put his leaders out there right where the people were working and living so they'd be there to coach them, encourage them, and train them. Verse 17 says, the crew did their work with one hand while they held the weapon in the other. This doesn't literally mean they, work one, they worked one-handed. It means they were equally prepared to work and defend. They were as ready to work as they were to defend. Those of us who serve the Lord, which is all of us, we have to be ready at all times to work and defend against spiritual attack. Every builder wore a sword. I bet that looked awesome. How cool would that be? I don't know if they wore tool belts, but they got to wear a sword. That would be fun. You and I, we're foolish. We're foolish if we don't realize that we too are living and working in enemy territory. We need to keep our sword, the Word of God, 
close by our hands at all times. We really do. And Nehemiah kept the trumpeter near him. That wasn't because he loved music. It was because Nehemiah was watchful and he wanted to sound the alarm the instant he saw anything that was amiss. Now, unfortunately, we have to come to the end of the chapter. I don't want to end this, but this amazing chapter ends with Nehemiah one more time speaking to all the people. What a great communicator he was. Let's finish chapter 4 together, starting with verse 19, reading to verse 23. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, there he is going to everyone, and he said, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half, half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they, they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. Verse 23, so neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. This project site was so large they were spread out too thin to defend themselves. So in case of attack, the sound of the trumpet was their signal to rally to wherever Nehemiah was and there God would fight for them. You and I have to remember this. We can't leave here and forget this. We have to remember this. Every trial we face, every trial we face, every time we get bad news, Every time we start to feel discouraged, we need to listen for the sound of the trumpet. It's calling us to our Lord, and He will fight for us. Nehemiah prayed, and he stayed watchful until the work was finished. Dear brothers and sisters, we do not get a day off in our fight against our spiritual enemies. We just don't. All of us must pray and stay watchful until our work on this earth is over. Chris, do you want to come on up? Nehemiah chapter 4 gives us this message to take into the new year. Here's the message for 2018 and beyond. Do not be afraid of what might happen. Don't be afraid of what might happen. Instead, remember the Lord who's greater than whatever we're afraid of. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. In 2018, let's silence the voice of discouragement. It's not going to stop talking. But just like Nehemiah, you and I can stop listening. Our prayer team will be over here to my left, to your right, when the prayer, praise team is finished. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you would give us a man like Nehemiah who lived so long ago, but his, his role model for us is as fresh as right now. Lord, we need to remember how great and awesome you are. There's a lot of things we're afraid of. Father, sometimes we just can make ourselves so depressed, so discouraged by thinking, what if this happens? What if that? Lord, I pray if from this day forward we would put those thoughts away. We would turn those thoughts into prayers and we would just trust you and lean on you. And when we get bad news, when we feel discouraged, when we feel afraid, we'd hear the sound of your trumpet calling us to your side, Lord, and we would know that you, our almighty God, will fight for us. We thank you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.